Hello and welcome to Your Employment Matters. I'm Beverly Williams and I'm here to help you navigate your career. This is for anyone who's searching for their dream job or promotion, or perhaps you're just looking to hang on to the job you have. Today's work environments are multi-generational, multi-religious, multinational, multiracial, and multi-gender and multi-gender identity. Add market disruptors like Amazon and Lyft, along with the addition of AI, and it's easy to see why finding and keeping a job is such a challenge. Employment success and even employment survival depend on your ability to adapt. That's why my goal for this 30-minute podcast is to first advocate embracing change and differences, and second, to encourage you to proactively assume responsibility for your career. Get your work week off to a good start by listening to Your Employment Matters every Monday. Find out how to own your career and get the best practices for making your employment matter. By those who've known me for a long time, I'm known as the drama queen and I admit they're right. What I am not is capable of a level of creativity and vision that artistically gifted creative professionals have. I love the theater, music, and art, but I know my limitations. I chose a career path that didn't require me to sing, fortunately, or draw, but it allowed me to act in measured doses. My guest today is Caitlin White, a young lady I've known since before she was born. She is a talented actress, a professional fundraiser in her role as manager of individual giving at the Second Stage Theater in New York City, and she attends Columbia University in pursuit of a Master of Science degree in nonprofit management. Welcome, Katie. Thank you, Beverly. I'm so happy to be here. I'm happy to have you here. Just so people understand, your parents are friends of mine, and I knew when your mother was carrying you when she was pregnant. I know. I think there's pictures of that. I'm sure. (laughs) I probably don't want to see those pictures. That was long ago and far away. But that's just an explanation of before she was born. I don't want people to think that I'm, I've got a screw loose or something. Right. No. I know from keeping up with you through your parents that you've been acting. How did you know you wanted a career in the arts? So I don't remember ever acknowledging any other like career as the one that I wanted. I mean, I fell in love with the arts before I was even considering career paths at all. Like I was very, very, very young. You know, you know this about my parents that neither of them are artists or (laughs) theater practitioners themselves, but they are both lovers of the arts. And and so were my grandparents. And so I was definitely immersed in it both by my parents and, and my father's mother as well, really loved musical theater and old movies and music. And so there was always music on in the house. There was always an old movie, you know, singing in the rain and the sound of music and all of those things on constantly all the time. And I like took the baton and ran with it in a way that I don't think they even expected and just fell in love with it. And 
at like a really young age, like three, four, five, declared, this is what I'm going to do. And really stuck to that for a very long time. Took every voice lesson and piano lesson and ballet class and really immersed myself in all facets of the performing arts specifically through childhood and, and into college. So I don't ever remember wanting to do anything else, at least at a formative age. Well, I know from your parents that you've been acting in like summer stock and, and in other troupe, acting troops, performing troops. Mm-hmm. You transition from acting, performing arts into fundraising. Yeah. So I studied acting in college. I went to school at Drew University and I got my degree in theater arts, focusing on acting and directing. And then when I graduated, I graduated and and started to pursue a career in acting. And I had, I don't know, four or five years of consistently working at regional theaters, performing. And then after a while, the, the lifestyle of being an actor professionally, I found to be very different than participating in theater when I was growing up. So when I was growing up, I was constantly doing the art. You're constantly doing the the performance aspect of it or rehearsing something. There's always the next play at school. There's always the next class to sign up for, summer intensive to do. So I always had a project to work on. And as a professional actor, there's a lot of downtime between jobs. You're always looking for jobs. You're always you're auditioning, you're job interviewing constantly. And I didn't love auditioning. And something they tell you in theater school is that you have to learn to love auditioning. And I wasn't loving it. And I finally sort of put together for myself that what I loved about being an actor, what I loved about performing and being a part of theater was the collaborative aspect of it. Because I'm a people person and I feed off of the energy of other people. And so being a professional actor was actually very solitary a lot of the time. And I was working alone. And working on audition pieces, but I wasn't always in a rehearsal process or in a performance run where I was constantly engaged with other people. And so one of the last acting contracts that I did as a professional actor uh, was with a Shakespeare company in Connecticut. And while I was there, I worked with a really wonderful ensemble of actors while I was there. And when we were done with that contract and we were all coming back to New York, we decided that we wanted to keep working together in some capacity. So I and my artistic partner, who I met while I was there, who I'm now married to, (laughs) um, we sort of headed this theater company project together with this ensemble of actors from Connecticut and formed our own theater company for a few years. And, And in the time that we ran our company and produced our projects, I really fell in love with the, you know, first the producing side of theater and the administrative side of theater. I loved communicating with our actors, communicating with our donors, all of the logistics. And it started to be the thing that I felt like I was the best at. And the thing that other people in the group and the ensemble would turn to me and say, you you should do that. You're, You're the best at it. And one of those things was fundraising. We did, you know, this fundraiser to raise the capital to do our, our first production. And then had to run an annual fund campaign every year after that. And and at first it felt like a necessary evil to get to the the fun part of producing the show. And having put together this crowdsource campaign where we raised the money for the capital, 
during that period or just after, I connected with a friend of mine from college who was working at another New York nonprofit Broadway theater. And we had dinner and she was complimenting me on that crowdsource fundraiser and and saying how impressed she was that it was so professional. You know, she was asking basically like, who did it for us? And I said, I did it. (laughs) And she said, you know, I really think you have a talent for this because most people don't understand this after years of working in fundraising. That must have been very rewarding. It was extremely rewarding. And so to be at a point in my life where I felt like I was chasing a career that I had said I had always wanted, that wasn't really satisfying me anymore. And that the reason it wasn't satisfying me is because I felt like I always had to ask people for a job all the time or to think, you know, please tell me I'm the best at this, you know, in this moment so I can work again. And so to have someone say, I think you're really good at this sparked something in me. And I thought, well, maybe there's something to that. Maybe I should pursue a thing that where I'm an asset, where I'm wanted, where I'm being asked to do something, where I'm sought after. But Katie, isn't asking people for money difficult? I mean, not asking. I mean, who gives up money? It's almost like you have to, I don't know, plead. You know, this is a worthwhile project. Please help us survive. You know, it's so difficult, I would think. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm not going to say it's not difficult. I'm not going to say, you know, oh, my job's easy. I don't work hard because that's not true. (laughs) But I, I do think that it has to be based into things when you're fundraising for a nonprofit. You have to actually believe your pitch or your plea. I really do believe that, that if you genuinely believe in the cause that you are asking people to support, then it is much easier to give that pitch because you're telling the truth. And you can say it in a much more genuine way that comes across to the person that you're speaking with. I can see that. And the other thing that I've learned is that at least in the kind of fundraising that I'm doing currently, it's so much about the interpersonal relationships. And this goes back to what I really loved about theater growing up was this sense of community. And because I've now worked at Second Stage for four and a half years... And I manage our two giving programs. Many of those people have been members as long as I've been there. I've been able to form a relationship with them. We see each other four or five times a year when they come to the theater, when they come to one of our events. And so it becomes an interpersonal relationship. It's a professional relationship, but you really get to know the people. And, you know, I know both what shows they liked or didn't like but also where somebody's kid is going to college or when their grandchildren are born, I see pictures. And so you start to get to know people on a higher level. And so then the conversation's even more like the conversation you and I are having right now. You're calling an old friend or, you know, that they don't sometimes at that point, they don't even like let you ask the question anymore. They're just like, oh yeah, it's time for me to that, renew. That or, makes your job easier. It, absolutely. Absolutely. But especially in New York, there's so many possible places to put your donations. <laughs> I mean, if you have a, if you have a pot of money, New York has an endless array of possible places to send your money. If you want to make contributions, nonprofit, charitable, educational, there's just so many. So your job can't be easy. No, I mean, that that is a very specific challenge to fundraising in general. But I'll just talk about fundraising in theaters in New York City is the options. Because every year when I go to an arts fundraisers conference, they do annually, and I've been a couple of years now, and 
it is a big distinction because in the regions, in other parts of the country, if someone wants to give money to the arts, if they're passionate about theater, the symphony, or even a museum, there's usually only one or maybe two, but one big one in their area. So that's where they give their money and it's not really much of a question. And so in New York, there is this challenge of identifying what makes your organization special. Like what is it about our theater? What niche are we filling that other theaters aren't? Because not everyone likes all types of theater. And so then it's identifying donors who are interested in maybe they give to other theaters that are similar or... Sometimes you actually find that people want to branch out and experience something new, like they support a lot of classical theater. And so they call sometimes and they say, I don't ever see new plays. Like, how do I start? You know, because we produce works by living American writers. So most things are either brand new or revivals of shows that are 20 years old or less. So we're doing a lot of new things. So you do have those sorts of conversations with people. I do find that a lot of the donors in New York, a lot of the patrons of the arts in New York do give it multiple places, at least among the theaters, because we, you know, we do four or five plays a year and the theater down the street is doing four or five plays a year. So to fill their calendars, they have multiple memberships everywhere. Well, how decide that you needed to go to graduate school or that you wanted to go to graduate school. And let me just say, thank you for using actor. I used actress. I know that we've moved to the generic non-sexual reference. I'm going to try to remember that. (laughs) I I answered a both. I really liked actress for a very long time because it looked nicer written out, I thought. But actor is what I use now. The reason you just said. (laughs) Well, you know, we have to transition. We have to go. Given what I do for a living, I try to keep up. And sometimes it's just very difficult keeping up with, you know, how people like to be referred to. It's just not simple. You know, I have to ask. (laughs) And constantly changing. It is interesting. Something that sounded right to me, like actress 10 or 15 years ago. Right. I wouldn't use now, even in an off you know, handed way. So, well, especially given what you do, you want to make sure that you are credible and not using the right terms and references diminishes credibility. That's true. You know, in whatever industry you're in, I digress, you know, and I, I will do that. Tell me why you decided to go to Columbia. So I decided to go to graduate school. I loved school. I was a good student. So a higher education degree, a master's degree was always something that I aspire to some level. And so, of course, if you had asked me 10 or 15 years ago, I would have said, I'm going to go get a master's in acting or a master's in directing. And I didn't do that right out of undergraduate because I wanted to, I was eager to get out in the world and, and start working and just to see what that was. And now that I did that for a few years and decided it wasn't for me, I'm, I'm very happy that I, I didn't take the leap and go get a master's. So with that life lesson in mind, when I decided to make the career shift, I thought I would do it gradually, that I would see if I was happy with the shift, if this idea that fundraising for the arts was the right way to go, and that I actually liked it before I went and studied it and spent money to get a degree in it. And so first I did an, you know, I did an internship and then I've had um, worked my way up at three different institutions uh, over the course of six years. And I, I was getting to a point in my career where 
I knew that I was on the right path. I was feeling confident that the shift had been a good one and that I had been able to ascend to a certain point within my field just on you know, natural talent and what I had been learning on the ground at work and watching other people do what they do and and all of those things. And, and I, I was hitting a point that if as I'm getting to a level where I could be moving into a leadership position, I realized that those were skills that I wasn't necessarily seeing in my day to day at work, and that I really wanted to understand the best practices of how nonprofits function as a whole, because that would be important in my next role. And so I decided that I wanted to go and learn those best practices. The way I had gone and learned all the technique to be an actor at a certain point, I wanted the technique. I wanted the the formal training in nonprofit management. So I started to look at programs and, and I ended up choosing Columbia's program for a number of reasons, but one of them being there are also a lot of arts administration and arts management programs in New York. And there are also a lot of public administration programs in New York. And I decided that nonprofit management made the most sense because it was broad, that there are a lot of different kinds of nonprofits. And that with my skill set that I've developed, because I have other interests and other causes and missions that I'm passionate about, I may at a certain point decide that I want to go use my skills at a different kind of organization, at a, at not necessarily at a theater or a museum, which is where I've been working previously. And so I thought the broader education would also give me more options down the line as I look toward the next step. That was a smart move. I think it's helpful. I did something similar when I was in graduate school. I went to a two-year program as opposed to a one-year program because the second year of the program I selected was an internship. So at the end of the two years, mm-hmm. I would not only have a degree, I would have a year's experience. And I thought that would make me more marketable. You know, you have to think of, sometimes you have to think of the long haul. What's the end game? Right, like the long view. Yeah, yeah. End game. End game. You know, where do you see yourself in five or more years? You know. What's going to be the most versatile, allow you to be the most marketable? Exactly. If you don't really have, a, to your, use your word, a passion about one area or another, if you're willing to be flexible and nimble and, you know, you may have to change. And that's really, I think, what a lot of people miss. You know, you, it's, mm-hmm. you're zero focused on one thing. I have an undergraduate degree in public administration. And I saw it as a way to do a lot of things. And then having a right. degree, I had more things. I had more options. Exactly. So it is good to look at the long game, the long view, the short view. But if you're not wedded to one thing, some people, they know what they want. They want to be an actor. They don't want to be anything else. They don't want to direct until they find out that they do. Do you know what I mean? Everybody is able to change their minds. It's not just women. No. People change their minds People. all the time. Yeah, they really do. And something else I'll say is that I came out of my undergraduate, I had a great experience at, at Drew. But when I graduated, I had gotten a liberal arts degree. And so I studied so many things at school. And yet, when you look at my degree, you know, it says a bachelor's in theater. And 
I'm not not proud of it, but I it, it seems limited on paper, even on though paper. I, I felt like I got a very broad general education. And so when I was considering master's degrees, I wanted I wanted something that was both going to add a lot to my repertoire, but also look that way on paper too. Well, you can always flesh that out on a resume, you know, depending on what you're shooting for. You can emphasize the breadth of your coursework and your projects while in school. That option is always available to you. Do you miss acting? I don't. I don't. It's everyone's favorite question, but I don't really. I really thought I would. It took me a long time to make the change, you know, to just cut the cord and make the change and start the career shift. I would say it took about six months to a year to fully come to terms with the decision and and move forward with it. And I also think that running my own theater company concurrently with the beginning of the job change and, you know, I was working full time during the day in fundraising and development and then would go to rehearsal for my theater company at night. And over time, I found that what I was doing at work was interesting me more and or even the parts of running the theater company that were more like my work at work was more interesting to me and that I would be on stage in a scene with someone as an actor and I would be thinking about our ticket sale revenue. (laughs) I would be thinking about how I'm going to bring that gift in tomorrow at work. I would be thinking about something else, not the scene. And I realized in that moment that, you know, I wasn't being a good acting partner to my scene partner, definitely. And I found myself starting to just not be as interested in it anymore. So I naturally started taking myself out of the running, even though I was running the company and making the decisions about who was going to be in the show. I cast myself in smaller and smaller parts and less and less. So I feel like I took myself out of the game. So no, I don't, I don't miss it. Well, what advice would you give someone who wanted to pursue a career in nonprofit management or what were the other topics? I know you said public administration. Yeah. And in fundraising, yeah. Um, Or arts management. I think that what I would say for arts management generally or nonprofit management, I would suggest a genuine love for mission-based needs and organizations. You have to want to help people or provide a service that is so necessary. And that's really being hit home for me in my graduate studies that if you're in it for the money or if you're in it for the glory, there are other sectors to go to um, because that's not what the nonprofit sector is about, especially in the arts. It really is about making the work happen. And wearing a lot of hats is the other thing I would say is, or especially early in your career, be willing to jump in to the pool with two feet and learn a lot, but get past a lot of work. To be overloaded, to have a lot of things handed to you that you've never done before, and that you're going to like teach yourself how to swim in real time was my experience. And to let it happen. And maybe if I had gone to graduate school first, I wouldn't have experienced that necessarily. But I I do think that it taught me a lot. And it actually put my theater training to work too, like being open and willing to respond in real time and 
be a good collaborator. I think it's really important. And in terms of fundraising, the thing I would say, I tell people that you have to love people to be a fundraiser for all the reasons I was explaining before about having the conversations with people. And you have to really want to get to know them on an interpersonal level. I've watched brilliant people who are really smart, driven numbers people come into fundraising departments and really burn out on the talking to people part. You know, they get frustrated with the humanity, I guess, of it. And they want it to make sense like math, which I understand because we spend a lot of our time looking at financial documents, trying to solve the puzzle. But what's interesting about fundraising is that it's a mathematical equation that's answered with people, with response from humans. So it's not a perfect equation and you have to use your EQ to solve it. Especially mathematicians don't have an EQ. Right. And I've watched people either decide that they don't want to work in development or fundraising for that reason, or I've watched people have to, that that's the skill that they have to develop when entering the workplace. But the characteristics, the traits that you identified being collaborative being willing and wanting to work on a team and interpersonal relationships, develop those kind of relationships with the people you work with and you work for, that you come in contact with, wherever, whatever your job is, whatever role you have, however you earn a living, all of those qualities, all those characteristics are helpful to have. I mean, if you don't have any one of those three, you've got a problem. You may not be successful as an employee, as an entrepreneur, a business owner. You just, you have to be collaborative. You have to be wanting and willing to work with people to achieve a goal, whether it's fundraising or building a house. It's so true. We talk about your learning remotely. How did that work out for you? I know, you know, you you said you started by going to class and then everything shut down. Yeah, I'm happy to talk about that. Yeah, I started my graduate studies at Columbia in the last week of January. And so we went to school for about six weeks. And I was very set on I wanted to have the in-person education. Again, I'm a people person. I like face-to-face interaction and discussion and and all of that sort of interaction. And so and um, I wanted to be on campus and learning. So I was, you know, leaving work every day in Times Square and taking the train up to the Upper West Side to go to school for about six weeks. And then when COVID-19 started to become an issue, actually Columbia, my school shut down before my workplace. So I actually feel like I got tipped off that this was going to be a bigger problem than maybe we were admitting at work. Because I think, you know, the theaters and my office shut down on March 13th, and school had already been remote for two weeks at that point. So it was March 1st or so, Columbia emailed us, you know, we just got this email, and it obviously coronavirus had been in the news. And it was just around the time that the first case was reported in New York City. And there was a presumed case on campus at Columbia, which is why I think they were getting on top of it very, very quickly. And so they uh, emailed us and, and let us know that they were moving everything to remote learning. 
to keep us all off of campus. At the time, it was for two weeks while they ensured that the presumptive positive wasn't a positive and to allow the incubation period to pass. And so, yeah, immediately, you know, they gave us the week off because they hadn't prepped any of this. They hadn't prepped anything to be online. So they canceled class for the week. And then the following week, I was still going to work, but I started taking class online. And now, four months later, five months later, it feels like the normal. But it was very jarring in the beginning to start this, you know, people that you had seen in person and interacted with, you know, in class and had these, you know, lively discussions with just a week or week and a half before. Suddenly, everyone's this postage stamp sized person on a Zoom screen. And of course, we've all now kind of adapted to it. (laughs) But at the time, it was a big shift. And the professors have to learn how to change everything to be possible in an online format. And so the way, you know, a simple PowerPoint presentation that we would normally just put up on a screen in class and present, you know, we had to learn how to record it. And we had to deal with all of the technical difficulties of learning how to use new software on top of learning all of the content that we're learning for school. So it was a challenge for both the professors and the students because we were all navigating this new technology. At least Zoom was very new for me and and how to use it. And now I feel very comfortable, but I did not on March 15th. (laughs) People are really having difficulty even thinking that this might be the new normal. Mm-hmm. It's really unfortunate. For me, I've been writing, I've been working from home for so long now. It really is not a big deal for me. But I recognize that people who are not used to it, and especially people who like you are people, people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they like to talk, they like to interact, whether it's at a desk over, you know, water or coffee or in the cafeteria. Just that sense of isolation is very off-putting for some people, but I'm good. If I can conduct a workshop with my slippers on and a, and pajama bottoms, I'm good. Yeah. I would say that although I'm an extrovert, certainly, I am also someone who right loves to like be at home in my PJs. So there's been some pros to this too. And it's been very interesting and enlightening to see just how much of my work I actually can do from home. Yes. Comfortably. And I am someone who I do get the same sort of, and I know not every extrovert is this way, but just having this conversation with you is giving me that same like serotonin happy of of talking to somebody in person. So isolation. I talk on the phone. It doesn't feel so, so different. And I was already, you know, speaking to a lot of my donors on the phone a lot even at work. So it's really the, you know, the off the, you know, I work in an open office. So working alone in my home is very different. And having meetings is tough, like having real conversations with more than one person. I find on Zoom, you know, things can get lost or not yeah. everyone has the same attention span in front of a screen that they do when we're sitting around a conference room table. So some things like that is lost. But the one-to-one, I find the phone face-to-face Zoom replicates it pretty well. I agree. I really agree. And you know, Caitlin, I really appreciate you taking the time today. 
And I hope that we get a vaccine soon because I want to go to the theater. Oh, me too. I miss it so much. (laughs) I want to go to a restaurant. I know. I know. As like someone who just loves to consume culture, I think that's the thing that it doesn't feel like there's a replacement for it. It really is. There just isn't. It happens in real time, right? Whether it be theater or a restaurant, you know, food, or even a museum going to see a piece of art in person. And I applaud all of these organizations that are putting their their content online. It's incredible it is to cool. keep it going. Um, talk about innovation and a lot of a lot of manpower going on behind the scenes at these arts organizations right now. So I'm not putting it down at all. But I do miss like it being real in front of me and tactile. And I, I miss it. Sure. To your point, I'm amazed by how quickly people have transitioned. I guess it's out of necessity. They've turned on a dime. Many of these companies and these institutions and these venues have turned on a dime to create consumable content that people can enjoy so that there is not the void that there might have been. There could have been it could a have been real, worse. Yeah. A problem with just a lack of things to do. I know even I'm amazed. I watch ESPN because I can't really get consumed with the um, cable network shows. ESPN has created something out of nothing. There has been no sports. Right. And they're on almost 24 hours a day. Wow. That's incredible. It's it's true. It's incredible. Estimate to their, their employees, their creativity. You wouldn't expect that kind, that level of creativity in a sports network. No, they're but, doing it. But I would imagine actually like, you know, theater administration offices that you have a lot of former performers and other types of creators working even for ESPN. So I'm sure. But necessity is the mother of invention. It really, it really is. It really is. And I think that's why, you know, the transition for school was tumultuous at first, but actually felt pretty painless after a week. And the same thing with school. I, I found it very, very interesting how much of this technology already existed. And now we've all very quickly migrated to it out yes. of necessity. And it's now being put to work in a really incredible way. So I'm very eager for real life things to start happening again as soon as it's safe and we can all do that. But I do think that it will be interesting to see how this kind of interaction and technology and this kind of platform continues to exist in our lives. I'm looking forward to it. Me too. Thank you so much. Thank you. And I look forward to seeing you soon. This was so fun. Yeah. Thanks for listening to Your Employment Matters with Beverly Williams. If you found this podcast helpful, please subscribe and leave a review. I truly appreciate your support and that helps other listeners find the podcast. If you have a comment, question, or suggestion, you can reach me at bawilliams at youremploymentmatters.com. My book, Get the Job Done, is available on amazon.com and barnesandnoble.com. Please join me again next week. Until then, remember to embrace change and differences.
This podcast is part of the Sound Advice FM network. Sound Advice FM. Women's voices amplified.